Hello, I'm Andrew and welcome to this week's edition of the Black Country Talking News for the 15th of November 2023. Hello and welcome to the Black Country Talking News, brought to you by the sight loss charity Beacons. We're pleased to confirm that the Talking News is now available via Alexa. Once you've enabled the Talking Newspapers skill, all you need to do is play Talking Newspapers and ask for the Black Country Talking News. Our Talking News service is also available via the free Wireless for the Blind app. It can be found on the Beacon Centre website www.beaconvision.org forward slash talking dash news. As a podcast via services such as Apple or Spotify or as a free CD, simply contact Beacon Centre on 01902 We hope you enjoy this week's edition. Reading for you this week, we have myself, Andrew, Nathan, Angela, Ian, Christine, Helen, Mina, Simon, and of course, not forgetting Flashback Roger. In this week's edition, we have an update from Beacon, the quiz with Mina from a supersonic car to a battle of Trafalgar. We have the latest local news for the black country. Stacked full of late drama, we have the latest football news for Wolves and West Brom. A did you know section from Flashback Roger. The weather for the weekend, and with the temperatures dropping and the leaves beginning to tumble, we hear from the gardening experts at MK Pulse magazine who have plenty of autumn and winter tips to share. Local news to start though with Ian, Christine, but first Angela. People across the borough of Dudley are being asked to have their say on plans that will shape the development of sites for future new homes and employment use. The draft Dudley local plan says the borough can meet the majority of its housing need in urban areas and includes proposals for new homes on an array of brownfield sites across the borough. In particular, five brownfield sites have been identified as a priority for housing and are expected to deliver nearly 2,000 of the 11,954 homes needed by 2041. There are two sites in Briley Hill with 300 homes earmarked for Daniel's land, the embankment, and 600 on land at Waterfront Way, Level Street. In Dudley Town Centre, 120 homes are proposed for King Street, Flood Street and 280 for the Portersfield site on Trindle Road, Hall Street, while 650 homes are planned for King's Binford, Ketley Quarry site. The plan also includes a proposal to designate Amblecote's Corbett Meadow as local green space to protect it from inappropriate development. 
A consultation was launched on Friday, November the 10th and will run until Friday, December the 22nd. Councillor Patrick Harley, leader of Dudley Council, said, We have made our intention very clear that we will have an urban-led strategy that will use our brownfield sites. But local people are central to this plan and we want to hear what they have to say about these proposals. We have demonstrated time after time that we listen to local people and that is never more important with how their borough should be developed in the future. People can have their say online at dudley.gov.uk forward slash local plan. There are also copies of the draft plan at Dudley Council Plus in Castle Street, the Council House in Priory Road and the Borough Libraries. A series of drop-in events have been organised between November the 15th and the 30th and people can also get help and support by emailing planning.policy at dudley.gov.uk or calling 01384 814136. Feedback from the consultation will be published in autumn 2024. Leading figures from across Wolverhampton have taken their first look at an innovative new project which aims to help people struggling through the cost of living crisis. Members of the Good Shepherd Homelessness Charity, Wolves Foundation and Wolverhampton Council visited the Central Community Shop which will be opening its doors at the historic Queen's Building in the city centre later in the month. The shop, which is the flagship store among a network of community shops the council has pioneered across the city, will offer residents of Wolverhampton the opportunity to register and buy food at affordable prices. The Queen's Building, situated near the city's bus and train stations, was built in 1849 and the venue will be run day-to-day by staff and volunteers from the Good Shepherd and Wolves Foundation. Initial opening hours for the Central Community Shop will be from 10am to 2pm on Tuesdays, Wednesdays and Thursdays and shoppers can turn up and register for an annual membership for the price of £3. It will soon be joined at the same location in January by a new Pomegranate Social Enterprise Cafe as well as a multi-use space on the first floor aiming to deliver support and interventions that alleviate poverty, build financial stability and offer training and employability guidance. Lucy Cox, the Good Shepherd's service manager for food and advice services, said, We are delighted that after so much hard work between all the partners involved, the Queen's has been transformed into a shop and cafe area for this new project, whilst maintaining its charm as such a wonderful and historic building. This will offer a dignified experience for shoppers who are experiencing financial challenges from the cost of living crisis, as well as an opportunity for those who have previously accessed the Good Shepherd's food service to make a step forward. Our staff and volunteers are ready to continue their hard work to ensure the shop becomes a really successful part of the city centre. And once that is up and running, we look forward to opening the community cafe, which we hope will become popular with commuters, shoppers and office workers within the city. 
Investment for the shop comes from the government's levelling up program, Wolverhampton Council and the Wolves Foundation, Wolves' official charity, who are backing the project as a legacy for their Feed Our Pack initiative, which will transition to a new approach in January. The project has also received £130,000 from the UK government through the UK Shared Prosperity Fund, with Wolverhampton Council adding its own investment from its Household Support Fund. Tom Warren, Senior Manager with Wolves Foundation, said, Feed Our Pack was set up during the pandemic and provided a range of different support, both in food and other areas for people who were finding life difficult. As we move forward into next year, we plan to sustain that network of support which Feed Our Pack has developed. And this is just one of the many projects with which the Foundation can help people make positive and sustained changes to their lives. The Queen's Building will not only provide affordable food for people who are still facing challenging circumstances, but also access to additional services around training and employability. It's a really exciting project, which the Foundation are delighted to be a part of. Now then, here's something a little more saucy for you. I don't know about you, but I always knock on the fridge door before I open it. Just in case there's a salad dressing. (laughs) Terrible jokes aside. And two Stourbridge sisters will see a label inspired by their design appear on tens of thousands of limited edition salad dressing bottles on supermarket shelves. Erin, 14, and Isla Smith, 12, entered the Newman's Own competition last year while attending an over-the-wall camp in Staffordshire, which provides residential stays for children with health challenges and disabilities and their families. The sister's younger brother, Kia, has Otahara syndrome, a rare type of epilepsy. The charity provides therapeutic camp-based activities for children aged 8 to 17, creating an environment of fun, adventure and creativity, and has provided the sisters with some well-deserved respite following a turbulent few years. The creative and colourful label, inspired by Erin and Isla's eye-catching design, will be featured on 30,000 special edition bottles and is set to hit supermarket shelves this week for three weeks. Newman's Own donates 100% of its profits to charities helping kids facing adversity, including Over the Wall in the UK. And the competition to design a label for its limited edition ranch dressing was launched to engage children attending the -the over-the-wall camps so that they could have fun helping raise awareness of the charity in a public space. As a result, over-the-wall can continue to provide much-needed escapes and respite for families such as the Smiths. Erin and Isla were attending the camp for the first time when they entered the competition and took inspiration from their stay before putting pencil to paper. The winning design features a range of experiences that children can enjoy at the camps, such as music, campfires, archery and making memories in the outdoors. 
In addition to seeing their design on the limited edition bottles, the girls were presented with a large framed poster of the winning image, along with £50 worth of Amazon vouchers each. Avid horse rider and violinist Erin said, Over the wall has been a great experience. I've made friends with children who are in similar situations, which has helped me. It's a very important charity as it helps take off the pressure for families who might need a rest. Isla, who loves singing and acting, added, I feel very proud because it's something me and my sister have made together. I'm excited that people will be able to buy a product that we've designed the label for, which will help other kids in situations like ours. The girl's mother, Becky, added, I'm so impressed because I knew there were camps for children with disabilities, but Kia is too unwell to do anything like that. So when I found out there was a sibling camp for the girls, it was great news. It's hard being the sibling of a disabled child. The girls' lives changed so quickly. They've had a tough time and needed support with their mental health. The fact that this camp means they can get away from mum, dad and the seizures for four days and just have fun is brilliant. It really is a fantastic organisation and it's given me and my husband peace of mind. I hope that Erin and Isla's label design really helps raise awareness of Over the Wall so that other families can benefit from the camps too. The limited edition Newman's Own Ranch Dressing is being made available for three weeks across the UK exclusively at Sainsbury's supermarkets from November the 1st, including in Sainsbury's Briley Hill and Ambercote stores. Up next, we hear from Helen, who, as usual, has our latest Beacon update. Hi everyone, it's Helen from Beacon, back with your weekly update of everything that's been going on at the charity. Now this week, I'm going to start with an upcoming event that you might be interested in if you'd like to have your say on how maternity and family services should be shaped in Wolverhampton in the future. On November the 29th, between 10am and 1pm, we are hosting a drop-in session in the courtyard area of Beacon Court so blind and partially sighted people can have their say on the issue. If you're a parent or a grandparent and want to have something to say and like to come along, please call 01902 880 or email inquiries at beaconvision.org. Now, it's recently been National Trustee Week, so we think there's no better time to say thank you to our wonderful trustees. They play a key role in our charity as they take responsibility for ensuring our organisation is making a difference for people with sight loss. Like all of our volunteers, they give their time, knowledge and expertise for free. A third of our board have lived experience of sight loss and their backgrounds are diverse, with everything from a former nurse to a solicitor. What they have in common is that they all want to make a difference for people with sight loss. Thank you for all that you do. Now, next this week, would you like to join the Beacon Book Club? Every month, our members get together to discuss their favourite reads and delve into new stories. I love a book. If you'd like to join them at our next session, you can find out how to get involved on our website, www.beaconvision.org or give us a call on 
01902-880-111. Now, last this week, if you'd like to keep updated with our member news activities here at Beaking, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter. We provide it in a range of formats, so you can call us. I'll give you the number again, just in case. It's 01902-880-111 or email inquiries at beaconvision.org to be added to our mailing list. That's it for this week. I'll be back again soon with another update. Thanks for that update, Helen. Next up, we have another block of local news. Families of Sunbeam workers who built the famous 1,000 horsepower land speed record car in 1927 at the company's Wolverhampton Works are being urged to come forward. The 4-ton, 23-foot, 6-inch car was built at Sunbeam's Wolverhampton Works with the aim of being the first vehicle to break the 200-mile-an-hour barrier. And staff at the National Motor Museum at Bewley are appealing for help in trying to identify any workers who helped build Sir Henry Seagrave's land speed record-breaking 1927 Sunbeam 1000 horsepower. With Seagrave driving, the car achieved this milestone on March the 29th, 1927 at Daytona Beach in Florida with a top speed of 203.792 miles per hour over the flying mile. The car itself was a miracle of engineering. The two 22.45-litre Sunbeam Metabili aero engines were installed behind and in front of the driver, linked together and driven through a three-speed gearbox. Almost every part of the car was built in Great Britain, most sourced from the automotive powerhouse that was the West Midlands. One worker has already been identified. The family of Joseph Anslow, who was Sunbeam's chief body worker on the project, contacted the museum himself. Amanda Pettit, Joseph's great-granddaughter, emailed Bewley when she saw a picture of him pushing the great car, nicknamed the Slug, out of the factory, published to launch an appeal for funds to help restore the car. Amanda said the Sunbeam project became his life, and he was immensely proud of it. I think he was sad to see it go when he left the factory. On the day the picture was taken, his wife told him to stand in the front and put his cap on so he could be recognised. The family said that Joseph referred to Sunbeam as his baby, and his wife joked that he thought more of the car than her. Amanda, aged 61, and her family took her father John Cooper to see Sunbeam at Bewley for his 85th birthday, and he was shown the work being carried out on a Sunbeam in the workshop. The National Motor Museum has already started the sympathetic restoration of the car. The Sunbeam Restoration Campaign aims to raise £300,000 to restore the slug with the ambition of taking it back to Daytona Beach in Florida for the 100th anniversary of its record-breaking run in 2027. The process, in partnership with Hampshire-based Brookspeed Automotive, will be fully documented through filming and blogs, and there will be opportunities for schools, universities and colleges to get involved in STEM workshops and activities. National Motor Museum Chief Executive John Murden said, We'd love to hear from any of the families involved in building the 1,000 horsepower back in 1926 and 1927. The museum exists to tell the story of motoring, and family memories can really add a personal touch to something that has such an important place in our national heritage. We'd love to uncover and record memories before they fade. 
Funds are now needed to turn back the clock and complete the full restoration project. Donations to the Sunbeam 1000 horsepower restoration campaign can be made online at nationalmotormuseum.org.uk slash sunbeam hyphen 1000 HP hyphen restoration hyphen campaign. More powertrain monsters have been built since the Sunbeam, and the current land speed record, which was set in 1997, sits at a go-greased lightning 763 miles per hour, matching the speed of sound. Now the UK wants another crack at the world land speed record. And if you've got a penchant for some rooster tails of dust and are partial to a sonic boom or two, then you'll be excited to hear that they need a driver for its made in the Midlands supersonic car, the Bloodhound. To be in the running, you'll need to prove you can handle travelling at more than 800 miles per hour, 1,290 kilometres an hour, and have a major sponsorship deal behind you. Bloodhound has been sitting in the Coventry Transport Museum since impressing on testing runs in South Africa's Kalahari Desert in 2019. To go racing again and break the land speed record would likely cost £12 million. The Covid pandemic scuppered attempts to raise the necessary cash four years ago, but team leader Stuart Edmondson is convinced the time is now right to revive the mission. And he's going to pursue an approach that's often seen in other categories of motorsport, where the driver brings with them a substantial package of funds to essentially buy the seat. It's how some of the greats in Formula One, like Michael Schumacher, first got their chance. Mr. Edmondson is not saying the applicant has to have come from a specific background, but they will need the right aptitude. They've got to have certain skills and experience. I need a particular mind to sit in Bloodhound. It's all about discipline in a challenging environment. From the Bloodhound project's inception to its African test runs, the driver was Andy Green, the former RAF pilot who set the current supersonic land speed record of 763 miles per hour. He's now handing on the baton to the next generation, but will continue to advise behind the scenes. Bloodhound achieved 628 miles per hour using only its jet engine. Record runs would also use a rocket. As for the car itself, it was in good condition, said Mr. Edmondson. Sensitive components such as the EJ200 Eurofighter jet engine have been removed and put in safe storage. 
The Defence Secretary, Grant Shapps, has assured the team the power units will be made available again if the project goes racing once more. Mr Edmondson said the car would first need to be stripped down and then rebuilt, with the aim of running at speed in June to July of 2025. As before, this would take place on Hackstein Pan, an immense mudbed in Northern Cape. When Bloodhound raced there in 2019, it achieved a top speed of 628 miles per hour, which is 1,010 kilometers an hour. The mark put it among the top eight fastest cars of all time. But what made Bloodhound's performance really noteworthy was it completed its runs using just the EJ200. The car had been designed to also carry a monopropellant rocket. Subsequent modelling indicated that with the two power units thrusting in tandem, the vehicle should be capable of travelling considerably faster than the existing world record. Like Andy Green, Mr Edmondson had a successful career in the RAF and today continues to work with the military in a consultancy role, advising on solutions to decarbonise planes, including through the use of synthetic fuels. The Bloodhound team leader wants the land speed racer to follow this route also. Its monopropellant rocket would use high test peroxide, which decomposes into a hot mix of steam and oxygen to provide thrust. But it needs first to be forced over a catalyst and that requires a pump driven by a separate engine. An electric solution will be sought for this, making Bloodhound a hybrid vehicle. People might say land speed records are no longer relevant. Yes, they can be, argued Mr Edmondson. We can still push engineering boundaries and go with the way the world is changing. We can operate that EJ200 without using a drop of fossil fuel and we can use an electric motor for the pump. We can set the first net zero land speed record in 2025. Now it's time to test your knowledge, as we have the quiz questions for this edition brought to us by Mina. Hello and welcome to this week's Flashback Quiz. All the answers you need can be found later in Flashback Rogers' Did You Know feature. But for now, these are your questions. Here we go. Question 1. What did the inventor of the first television call his invention? Question 2. In what year was television made commercially available? Question 3. 
Do most people dream in colour or black and white? Question 4. What is the world's most watched TV programme? Question 5. What was the first UK TV advert broadcasted in 1955? And finally, question 6. What did Luigi Baird forbid his children to watch? I will be back with you later in the show with all those answers. But for now, best of luck! Cheers for those questions, Mina. Hmm, I'll get my mind working on them. Up now, however, is another block of local news. Cost-cutting across the region is leaving residents in Dudley's leafy suburbs fearing for their safety due to unpruned trees, it has been claimed. Upper Gornal and Woodsetton councillor Adam Aston believes his ward has the darkest road in the borough due to a canopy of overhanging trees. Councillor Aston believes Tudor Road's trees could create hazardous conditions for pedestrians and create a flooding hotspot due to drains being blocked by leaves. He said, I'm regularly contacted by constituents to report overgrown trees which belong to the council. Tudor Road effectively has a roof on it, where the branches of huge beech trees meet in the middle, leading to some folk living in constant darkness. They are also dealing with horrendous leaf fall, which blocks storm drains and causes regular flooding. It is just one of a number of streets on the Oval and Tudor estate, which require action. A situation which I know is repeated right across the borough. Councillor Aston does not want the council to remove the trees, which help absorb carbon dioxide from traffic and give pleasure to residents all year round. He added, I am not for one minute calling for any healthy trees to be felled or removed, but for the council to carry out rapid inspections when issues are raised by local councillors and be far more willing to reduce or pollard large trees to improve residents' quality of life. Councillor Damien Caulfield, Dudley Council's Cabinet Member for Highways and Environmental Services, said we are aware of the frustrations regarding the trees in the Tudor Road area. However, the trees along this road are subject to tree preservation orders. Structural surveys have told us that the trees are not causing any structural issues to neighbouring properties. We will be inspecting the trees again in due course and any remedial works identified will be programmed in line with our current tree strategy and best practice. I must stress that safety is our priority when determining when to prune trees across the borough. We also need to consider our commitment to becoming a carbon neutral council by 2030 and the significant role trees play in removing carbon from the atmosphere. As the leaves begin to change colour in the region, 
and the temperature drops, many of us will be wrapping up in our woolies and heading out for scenic dog walks in the coming months. But as dog owners will know, with more leaves on the ground comes the potential for hidden toxic plants or flowers that they can't help but find. The team of experts at Pet Food Subscription Service, Tales.com, have put together a handy guide of seasonal flowers and plants that could actually be dangerous to your dog on your next walk. Yew trees. Yew trees are extremely poisonous to most animals, according to Tales.com. The experts added, if ingested, the short, spiky needles can become lodged or stuck in your dog's throat, while ingesting the leaves alone can be enough to lead to fatal or near-death consequences for your dog. The plant is also filled with poisonous red berries that your canine may see as a treat. The team urges that dog owners look out for their spiky green leaves and bright red berries and steer clear where possible. Acorns and conkers. It's that time of year again which means conkers and acorns are falling from the trees. As delightful as this might sound, they are toxic to our furry friends when they are ingested in large quantities, the expert explained. The team added, in fact, many pet parents do not realise that they can cause vomiting, diarrhoea, abdominal pain, lethargy and more if our dogs chew on them. Unripe acorns, which often appear green, can be the most harmful, so make sure to watch out for them on your next autumnal walk. Hydrangeas Displaying billowy blooms towards the end of summer and into autumn, hydrangea are beautiful, but they can be extremely dangerous to our pets. Their bulbs contain cyanide, which can be deadly to dogs if enough is consumed. The experts note, although serious cases of hydrangea poisoning are rare, if a small amount is consumed by your dog when they are digging in the garden, it can cause symptoms such as stomach problems, vomiting or blockages in the intestines. Horse chestnut trees Dog owners are also being urged to be wary of horse chestnut trees, which are the trees which conkers come from. Tales.com explains that this is because their bark, leaves and flowers can all cause extreme stomach problems for our dogs and in some serious cases can be fatal if enough is consumed. They continued, If you are not sure how to identify a horse chestnut tree, identifying factors usually include hand-shaped palmate leaves as well as pinky white flower spikes and conkers. Ragwort other flowers to be wary of, whether you are planning your autumn garden or out on a walk, are ragwort plants. Though they bloom in the spring and also during summer, it is still important to be vigilant when looking for the plants this time of year, as all of its parts are toxic and poisonous when consumed by dogs. When any part of the plant is consumed in sufficient quantities, it can cause irreversible damage to our canine's kidneys or lead to liver failure. Autumn crocuses. Autumn crocuses are described as goblet-like flowers which grow a few centimetres out of the ground. They typically appear in a purple colour with golden yellow stamens. You should keep your dog close if you begin to notice them sniffing around the flower since if they get too near and ingest them, the flowers can cause gastrointestinal upset for your dog. This may lead to vomiting, diarrhoea, drooling or other unpleasant symptoms. Amaryllis 
If your dog is a curious pet and happily likes to dig about and explore when out on walks or playing in the garden, make sure to keep the amaryllis flowers well out of reach. The beautiful flowers are often popular at Christmas time as they bloom in bright shades of red, so October time is often when they are planted. However, much like hydrangeas, the bulb of the flowers contain a compound called lycrin, which when ingested can cause symptoms such as drooling, nausea, vomiting and diarrhea in dogs. Fortunately, most canines will need to ingest a large amount before severe toxicity occurs. With temperatures already falling across the region, time now to hear from our gardening experts at MK Pulse magazine with handy tips and advice on how to prepare and protect our garden plants from the harsher weather to come. DNF Soundings Features from across the UK. Hello, this is Jan with some seasonal tips and ideas from the gardening expert at the MK Pulse magazine, based in Milton Keynes. Stand tall for our trees. If you want to reconnect with yourself and press pause on the stress in your life, a walk amongst nature is the easiest way to perk yourself up. It's a simple, free way to exercise, and if done regularly, studies show that it can reduce the risk of poor mental health. More than ever, we need to learn to appreciate the wonder of nature, and yet we seem to find more reasons than ever to justify the destruction of our green spaces. The recent deliberate act of vandalism of one of the country's most photographed trees, the sycamore gap tree, saw the collective anger of the nation cut loose. The sycamore gap tree is an iconic example of a tree lost to stupidity. But across the country, people justify the removal of trees every day. Just the same as when we dismantle ancient buildings that have stood proud for centuries, replacing them with modernistic travesties, there is no way back once a tree has been removed from the landscape. What is the best way to mark such losses? By engaging the next generation in the importance of trees, by nurturing an appreciation in our children so that they care enough to make change for the better. This autumn, take that walk in the woods with the family, harvest some of those acorns or conkers, and help your children grow their own saplings. It's a great way to spend family time and a welcome break from staring at those screens we carry everywhere with us. Children will get a real sense of satisfaction as their saplings grow and in some small way, you'll be helping to counteract some of the devastation that is now all too frequent. And with Christmas coming, why not swap that cheap box of chockies you offer and instead give the gift of a tree? The National Trust is one of many charities offering the service and, as its website says, quite simply, trees are essential for life. They clean the air we breathe, lock up carbon as they grow, and provide homes for wildlife. What could be a better gift than that? And you won't need to wrap it. So, how does your garden grow? Early November is the best time for autumn colour in the garden. Strong winds loosen tree stakes and ties, and these needed to be checked. 
Damage to the bark of some ornamental and fruit trees was found. Bare root trees and roses are now available and should be stood in water before planting, liberally sprinkling mycorrhizal fungi on them to encourage plant growth. The rows of salad greens were covered by plastic cloches, which have saved them from damage by heavy rain, and they are providing additions to the school's meals. A large root of rhubarb was dug up, divided, and planted elsewhere, leaving room for two short rows of broad beans, aqua dulce claudia to be fitted in, and a row of garlic cloves pressed in firmly after a mulch of fresh compost has been added. In spite of a poor show this summer, I'm sowing sweet peas one centimetres deep in pots of fresh multi-purpose compost. Pelagoniums and fuchsias potted up from the garden must be kept frost-free in the greenhouse or in a cool, light room. Continuing to feed the birds and keeping the bird bath topped up is an important routine. What happened to Bonfire Night? NF Soundings. Next up, we have a feature-length episode of the news remembering James Eaton, a Battle of Trafalgar hero from landlocked West Midlands. In a storm of shrapnel and splinters, they fought for their lives on decks slippery with sea and blood. They fought hand to hand as musket balls fizzed around them, the screams and moans of the wounded and dying drowned by the deafening roar of cannons. This was the horror of Trafalgar, a salt-seeped slugging match between 27 Royal Navy ships and a combined French and Spanish force of 33 vessels. This was our greatest victory at sea, but it came at an immense cost. When the dreadful din had subsided off Cape Trafalgar in the Atlantic Ocean on October 21st, 1805, 458 British seamen lay dead, including the battle's architect, Horatio Nelson. More than 1,200 were wounded. The French and Spanish had lost 4,395 men. The list of wounded nudged 2,550. This was our greatest victory at sea, and men from the landlocked West Midlands were at the heart of the five-hour fury. Research by the National Archives and National Maritime Museum revealed 124 of our Trafalgar heroes came from Warwickshire, 62 from Staffordshire. Last weekend, we paid tribute to the sacrifices made by our brave servicemen and women to protect these islands. Locally, we dwelled upon the suffering of those who perished in the trenches of World War I, those who risked all in the seas, skies and in the rubble of World War II. On Remembrance Day, we will forget the deeds of those who fought tooth and nail at Trafalgar. 
Yet the band of landlubbers from our region include one man instrumental in the success. A man whose ship was first to face the enemy's guns. A man who prevented flagship HMS Victory from being captured. His headstone at All Saints Church, West Bromwich, carries the epitaph He was a gallant officer and affectionate husband. James Eaton was more than that. He was a hero. When we talk of Trafalgar, we talk of Nelson. In the West Midlands, Eaton should be mentioned in the same breath. As local historian Matthew Ward put it, I think James Eaton has been totally forgotten, along with the contribution of people from what became the West Midlands at Trafalgar. People think about Portsmouth, Chatham and Devonport, but lots of people from our region were in Nelson's fleet. As signal midshipmen on HMS Temeraire, which sailed into the fray side by side with victory, Eaton relayed to the other ships Nelson's famous battle cry. England expects that every man will do his duty. Contrary to popular belief, that was not Nelson's intended message. He wanted to tell his force England confides that every man will do his duty. With the first shots only seconds away, Nelson was informed confides would be too long-winded for semaphore and was scrubbed in favour of expects. We have a detailed, enduring and accurate account of the battle, thanks to Eaton, who lived at Hill House, West Bromwich. On his own ship, the Temeraire, 47 of the crew perished. 76 were wounded. In his diary, Eaton wrote, At daylight we saw the enemy fleet in southeast quarter, consisting of 33 sails of the line, four frigates and two sloops. We cleared the ship for action and made all sail standing for the enemy fleet at half past eleven. The ship on the starboard side engaging the victory, the French vessel Redoutable, fell alongside of us. The yard arms locked and immediately after struck and was boarded by some of the officers and part of the crew of the Temeraire at the same time being closely engaged with one of the enemy of the starboard side, a Spanish three-deck ship, Santa Ana. It was the Temeraire that saved the day. As the Redoutable's French crew repaired to flood onto the victory, it unleashed a withering barrage that killed 200 of the marauders. Matthew Ward said, Victory and the French Redoutable became quickly locked together and there were lots of men firing at the deck, which killed Nelson. The French crew were about to board Victory and at that point, there was a real risk they might have succeeded. The fighting Temeraire then came alongside the Redoutable from the other side and fired a broadside that instantly killed around 200. In his book The Fighting Temeraire, Sam Willis wrote, The Temeraire had followed the victory as she smashed through the enemy's line, engaged the largest ship in the world, saved victory from capture and took two prizes, one of them the best trained ship in the entire French Navy. Eaton's ship was later immortalised by J.M.W. Turner in his painting The Fighting Temeraire. 
we know very little about Eton, one of our region's greatest heroes, and the most detailed background information we found has been provided by westbromwichhistory.com. Born in 1783, he lived a life crammed with adventure and in latter years earned handsomely from the region's thriving coal industry. He died on February 28, 1857. Born in London, Eaton married his cousin from Cannock in 1816 and relocated here. Eaton moved into Hill House, Dagger Lane in 1837 and died at the property. Legend has it Charles Dickens was once a guest at this imposing abode. We don't know if his wife survived him. We don't know if the couple had children. His career in the Royal Navy began in 1799 during the French Revolutionary Wars and as a crew member of HMS Hannibal, he was captured during the Battle of Algeciras Bay on July 5th, 1801. The date is unknown, but Eaton was returned to this country and was on board HMS Atalante in 1803, a 16-gun brig sloop that enjoyed considerable success during the Napoleonic Wars. Two years later, he was serving on HMS Temeraire as a signal midshipman, dubbed Snotties, after Nelson admonished one for using his sleeve as a hanky. Eaton faced death at Trafalgar, the now-lieutenant would again stare it in the face two years later on HMS Lion when badly wounded while escorting a convoy out of China. In 1811, Eaton was in the thick of it as a mighty fleet helped capture Java from Dutch forces. Eaton again showed his bravery in 1813 when, while serving on HMS Beaver, he rescued the crew of a Swedish vessel. He rose to the rank of commander and left the Royal Navy in 1842 for a life much more ordinary. By then, outside interests were already providing a very healthy income. WestBromwichHistory.com states, Eaton became a successful businessman with interests in coal mines and land. In 1838, he was in partnership with William Salter and William Raybould, when they took on a 21-year lease from Lord Dartmouth for the Heath Colliery. He was noted for being one of the better local employers, with an interest in the safety of his men, no doubt a legacy of his time in the Navy. It is interesting that Birmingham was the first to erect a memorial to Nelson. West Midlands residents raised £2,500 for the landmark, which was unveiled on October 25, 1809, and still stands proudly next to St. Martin in the Bull Ring. There was no such clamour for our very own Trafalgar fighters. In his poem, For the Fallen, Lawrence Binion wrote, Age shall not weary them, nor the year condemn. At the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will remember them. Very few will spare a thought for our Trafalgar heroes.
Up next, it's trivia time, brought to us by Flashback Roger and his Did You Know feature. Take it away, Roger. Hello again everybody. Well winter draws on as my gran used to say and longer evenings are with us for a few weeks now but it's now that I like to settle down with a good audio book or two if I can and of course there's the telly. Talking of which, did you know that? <coughs> Television was invented much earlier than I ever thought. It was actually in 1884 when Paul Gottlieb Nipkow of Germany developed the first mechanical television which featured an 18-line resolution. His new contraption could relay images via wires by way of a rotating metal disc. However, Nipkoff never named his invention as a television, but he called it an electric telescope. And the first set of televisions for commercial sale to the general public began in 1928. These TV sets were produced using John Logie Baird's improved mechanical television design. He also demonstrated Colour TV in 1926, but it was a long time after that it became commercially available. And some strange effects of black and white television have now become known. Most people dream in colour. However, for the people who grew up watching black and white television programmes, it now appears that their dreams are primarily in black and white, due to the effect of seeing predominantly black and white images. And the most watched television show in the world was our British show Top Gear. It became the most watched television show in the whole world with an estimated total views of 355 million per week and it was watched in over 170 countries across the globe. The very first television commercial advert was broadcast on the 1st of July 1941 in New York City. The advert featured a below watch and it took 20 seconds. The very first advert ever to be shown in the UK was for Gibbs SR toothpaste in September 1955 and in 1969 first one in colour in the UK was for birds eye frozen peas. <coughs> Incidentally John Logie Baird didn't ever let his children watch TV in his house as he said there was nothing of any value to see. Now of course there are hundreds if not thousands of channels of the same ilk some say but of course I couldn't possibly comment. Well, there it is for this week then, folks. A little glimpse into the history of our goggle box. Logie Baird had his opinion, but how was he to know about Coronation Street or the like? And where would we be without the world of entertainment about fingertips? Like it or not, the telly's a godsend, and a lifeline to many folks. In a road up look, I'm off. I'm going to see what's on tonight, and while I'm at it, I think I'd better see if my TV licence is up to date. But for now I'll just say bye for now then. Ta-ra a bit. Ta-ra. Up now we have to hear what the weather has in store for us. Brought to us, come rain or shine, by our own Sunny Mina. The weather for this week ahead is forecast to remain much the same with some sunny intervals but plenty of showers too. Temperatures are forecast to continue to feel like autumn. UV levels are expected to remain low. 
the sunrise and sunset times are 7.40am for the sunrise and 4.10pm for the sunset. Friday 17th of November is forecast to be wet and breezy with spells of light rain from lunchtime and with a moderate breeze. Temperatures are expected to remain around 10 degrees but will hold up well overnight at 6 degrees. Moving on and yep, you've guessed it. The spell of rain looks set to hang over the region for the week. With a moderate breeze, temperatures will actually feel a little milder at 13 degrees, both Saturday and Sunday, with Sunday looking like it may have the best chance of being relatively dry with some sunny intervals breaking through. On to next week, where the spell of unsettled weather will continue to dominate once again, with plenty of light, rain and drizzle to look out for. It is forecast for the rain to remain in the region on Monday 20th of November and continue right through to Thursday 23rd of November. With a gentle breeze, temperatures should continue to hold up at around 10 degrees. The showers are forecast to be persistent throughout the week, but there's a chance of some brief sunny intervals breaking through at times. So there we have it, yet another mixed bag of sunshine and showers for the week. As always, enjoy the weather. Cheers for that weather update, Mina. Now it's time to find out how our local football teams have been getting on. In what was an early lunchtime kickoff, it was the late, late show for Wolves, with two added time goals from Pablo Sarabia and Mario Lamina, completing a remarkable comeback to take all three points against Spurs at Molyneux. The autumn sun was gleaming, but Wolves were caught cold after just three minutes. In what was the worst possible start, Brennan Johnson turned the ball home from a couple of yards out to hand the visitors the lead. After such a frantic start, the game became scrappy as neither team was able to gain a foothold. Wolves were playing with intensity though and had the better of the action in a chaotic half of football. But in similar vein to last week's events against Sheffield United, they failed to convert the big chances created and entered the half-time break behind to Spurs. The second half was much the same. Wolves, playing with purpose and on the front foot, had a lot of the ball and created much the better chances, but were unable to find that killer touch, with the front three all guilty of missing huge, huge opportunities. The old gold seemed to be on course for a narrow defeat. Gary O'Neill rang the changes, bringing on the likes of Matt Doherty, Tommy Doyle and Pablo Sarabia, as Wolves huffed and puffed in search of an elusive equaliser. And like most great musical masterpieces, it was building up to an almighty crescendo. As in the first minute of added time, Wolves finally found their equaliser. Sarabia, who had stepped off the bench just four minutes earlier, used magnificent technique to bring down a Cunha ball and volley home at the near post in one swift action. An outrageous finish to a fantastic Wolves move. With the final attack of the game, Sarabia then became the creator. 
as a clever slide rule pass carved open the Spurs defence, playing in Lamina, who poked the ball home for a dramatic 97th minute winner. Cue peak pandemonium inside Molyneux. A remarkable impact, inspiring a miraculous win. Speaking after the game, Gary O'Neill insists Wolves' late win over Spurs is the proudest he has been of a team he has coached. We started very slowly, which caused us a problem, but the reaction from there was very, very good, O'Neill said. 1-0 down to Spurs, who are a possession-based team and can suffocate you with the ball, but the lads stepped up and kept believing in everything we worked on. I would have been very proud of the group anyway, even if that game had finished 1-0 to Tottenham. It would have been a hard luck story, but I would have still been very proud of what the group produced today. I spoke to the boys at half-time and the scoreline was irrelevant. We were the better side in the 45 minutes. We kept believing and kept pushing. It was probably the proudest I've been of a group I've coached. To produce what they produced against the top side, to go out there and go a goal down against a Spurs team that pressed extremely aggressively and keep causing them problems. Credit to the group. The head coach went on to mention how match winner Pablo Sarabia's dedication in training meant he was always due to play some part at Molyneux. Even before the game I was discussing with the coaching staff how Pablo could impact it and when and what the game needs to look like for him to have maximum impact. Wolves now have an international break before turning their attentions to a trip to Fulham. And down on the south coast, it was a reversal in fortunes for Albion, as they were just edged out 2-1 at Southampton, despite one of their best halves of football under Carlos Corberan in an entertaining contest. In similar fashion to Wolves, the Baggies suffered early, falling behind after just five minutes. Goalkeeper Alex Palmer saved the initial effort spectacularly, but the rebound was gobbled up by the Saints forward, Smallbone, who reacted quickest. Albion worked their way into some good wide positions, but were sloppy and loose with the ball, as the hosts did little else in the early exchanges to trouble the visiting backline. But they recovered well and shared a tight competitive first half in which Brandon Thomas Asante saw a huge chance deflected wide right on half-time. The visitors started to gain some momentum as Albion continued where they left off and remained on top in the second half. The baggies were hugely impressive. They thundered the woodwork twice, were denied by a last gasp Gavin Bazunu save, and countless other openings came and went as a meeting of two of the top six before kickoff didn't disappoint. It was all Albion. And a deserved breakthrough came on 65 minutes with shades of Saints opener. It owed all to Wallace's peach of a delivery. His cross from the right was headed against the woodwork from Thomas Asante and Bartley couldn't miss from a yard out in front of a boisterous away end. It was the least Albion deserved and they kept attacking at 1-1. The visitors looked like the only winners but the sting in the tail came 11 minutes from time. Totally against the run of play, a cross from sub Ryan Fraser from the left found an unmarked Adam Armstrong who buried his chance for a ninth goal of the season. The defence were out of position and Albion paid for it. 
Given the form and calibre of the hosts, now eight unbeaten, and the home crowd's response at full time, Albion can be proud. 10 points from a possible 15 in this block of game between international breaks is a fine return. As well as the visitors played, the head coach was unhappy to see his side unrewarded and pointed to the difference in both penalty boxes as telling. Most felt it was about as satisfying an Albion display in defeat in recent memory. But Corberan, when asked about complaints in the performance, said, I have because we didn't win. Football shows that even when you play this game that we have done, we need to keep growing and to attack better the attacking box and to defend better our own box. In one point, yes, satisfied with the second half. But we are not happy with the result. The feeling I have right now is the result. The head coach added, I think they have been better than us in the last third of the pitch. Just in the box, not even in the last third. I don't remember big opportunities for them, and I remember many possibilities for us. Now, here come the quiz answers, and they're brought to us by Mina. Hello, and here are your answers for this week's flashback quiz. Feeling confident? How will you score? Let's see. Question 1. What did the inventor of the first television call his invention? And the answer here is the electric telescope. Question 2. In what year was television made commercially available? And the answer here is 1928. Question 3. Do most people dream in colour or black and white? And the answer here is most dream in colour. Question 4. What is the world's most watched TV programme? And the answer here is Top Gear. I have to admit, that's one of my favourite too. Question 5. What was the first UK TV advert broadcasted in 1955? And the answer here is Gibbs SR Toothpaste. And finally, question six. What did Lucy Baird forbid his children to watch? And the answer here is his home television. Did you get them all right? If not, not to worry, as I will be back again next week to test you all again. Bye for now. Cheers for those, Mina. Up now is another Beacon update. Well, I guess it's that time of year again where you may be thinking about next year's diaries and calendars. So good news, Beacon are now taking orders for 2024 large print diaries and calendars. The diaries range from pocket or A6 in size and go up to A4. There is even a jumbo diary with more pages offering even more room. They have big and bold text making it easy to see. The 2024 calendars are also available now. The calendars are available in two orientations, portrait A3 or landscape A3, which is the shorter but wider of the two. If you would like a large print diary or calendar for 2024, Beacon are now taking orders. 
So give us a call on 01902 880 and ask to speak to a sight loss advisor. That's 01902 880 to order yours now. So that's it for another edition of the Black Country Talking News. A reminder to our CD listeners who have received CDs in padded envelopes that you don't need to send anything back to us. If you have a sight loss tip or someone you would like to wish happy birthday to, just say hello to. Maybe even a poem or talking book you would like reviewed, then please get in touch with us at the Beacon Centre. Call 01902 880 Email bctn at beaconvision.org or write to us at the Black Country Talking News, Beacon, Wolverhampton Road East, Wolverhampton, WV46AZ. We look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for listening and thank you to all our supporters, donators and volunteers who without their support will be unable to run this free service. Please note the information and views expressed in this recording does not necessarily represent the views of Beacon or Talking News and were accurate at the time of recording. Mentions of goods and services does not imply endorsement and whilst every care is taken to supply accurate information, Beacon and Talking News do not undertake liability for any errors. So it's goodbye from all of us, stay safe, have a good week and we look forward to bringing you next week's edition of the Black Country Talking News. ta